Sometimes there just aren't enough E's. <clears throat> Nobody got it. That's okay. I got it. All right. Psalm, somebody got late. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We are talking about spiritual disciplines and throughout the summer. In last week, last two weeks, we talked about prayer. I, I preached on prayer kind of broadly two weeks ago, and then Jeff talked about fixed hour prayer, liturgical prayer, the divine hours, whatever label you want to put on it last week, and I'm really grateful that he introduced us all to that. That has been an important uh, practice for me over the last several years. It's not every day. It's, I, it's sort of seasonal for me that I'm able to stick with it, but I'll, I will tell you this just by way of honesty and sort of um, endorsement of what he suggested in that. I, I, I've talked before about I've, I have sort of intermittent struggles with anxiety and depression, and for some reason, I can't remember if I've said this in this space or I've said it to a number of people before, but for some reason, Sunday mornings tend to be really tough for me. I, I just feel sort of a, I think I went through a long season of kind of pushing many thoughts or theological thoughts about the devil or evil or dark spiritual forces or all that kind of to the margin because I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Um, but it's real in my space on Sunday mornings, uh, almost every week. I just feel just sort of this resistance. Uh, and some days it's hard to, to even climb out of bed and, and climb toward this moment <laughs> for me. And that, uh, the Divine Hours, the specific books that Jeff recommended last week, the morning prayer, the morning liturgy from that uh, is sometimes how I get myself out of bed. It was today. And so, so all kinds of other good reasons to engage that practice, but just as a way of testimony, that has been true for me. Today, we're going to talk about something um, that I'm sure everybody is excited to talk about, and that is the spiritual discipline of confession. Uh, how you engage this word, this concept, is going to vary some based on your background. It's probably not exciting to many of us. There may be some weird masochists out there who get excited about this, but for most of us, um, it is probably not a thrilling thing. If you grew up in a Catholic or some sort of liturgical context where confession was a required thing. You may have negative associations with that. Most of us didn't, I don't think. Uh, we grew up pretty free of this, and confession for us was just sort of that thing that happened at youth camp that was really uncomfortable when somebody finally said all, you know, aired all of their dirty laundry, or some other time when we just get so overwhelmed by our own guilt that we finally, it finally all spills out. That's kind of the Protestant practice of confession, by and large, is it's a function of how much guilt do we feel and when does it spill over. 
at least in my upbringing and my experience. And it's going to vary some how you respond based on your personality. Some people are hiders. They're not really interested in people knowing about them and knowing them and knowing their stuff. Some people like to kind of be an open book and I'm a mess and here I am, love me or hate me. This is who I am. And so we come at this from different perspectives. But true confession, biblical confession, as the scriptures talk about it, is a non-negotiable part of our life as Jesus followers. Whatever we've done with it, however we feel about it, the scriptures are clear that this is supposed to be a part of the way that we live in following Jesus. But I do think it's lacking in our practice. Um, And that's why I want to talk about it in the context of spiritual disciplines, because I think that's the way it's meant, and I definitely think that's the way back to biblical living in this area for most of us. Um, Many years ago, I want to give my son as much benefit of the doubt as possible. Aiden's not here today, nor are his friends, so he's the child I'm going to talk about. Uh, Many years ago, the last time I preached about confession, I actually had a really good example of having to coax a confession out of uh, Ainsley and Zoe. They were three or four in this story, but they're both in the room now. It's a challenging thing as a preacher to have all your kids old enough to be in the room when you're preaching, and you have to think about the things you say. Uh, But Aiden's not here. So several years ago, Aiden was at the king's house. Stacy told Aiden and Sam specifically not to do something, and she came outside, and all the evidence suggested that Aiden had done this thing anyway. It was was not a big deal. There's nothing particularly nefarious about it. It was just something she didn't want him to do, and Aiden Aiden did it anyway. Whether Sam did it before she came outside, I have no idea, But, but she saw enough to know that Aiden did it, She confronted him about it. He flat out denied it. Um, And so when he came home, she shared that story with me. I said, okay, we'll talk about it. Um, And based on what she told me, I was convinced he did it as well. And uh, we spent a good hour talking through that uh, reality. And he was a rock, man. He was, there was no interrogation that was going to pull a confession out of him in this moment. And it was one of those situations where there was like a 0.5% chance that she misinterpreted what she saw. And so I was trying to, I was pretty confident, but trying to uh, not come down too hard and just, and he was getting old enough that I felt like there's got to be a better way to do this than just say, I'm going to give you a consequence no matter what you say, right? To try to like grow him up in this moment. And so I, I don't think I've ever shared this, this story here in front of all of you. And if this were a really large church uh, where a lot of people listen to this on the internet, I probably wouldn't share it anyway because of all the Twitter grief I would get about my parenting, but what, given what I'm about to tell you. But I didn't premeditate the exact words that I said to him. I did premeditate, premeditate the general concept. But what came out of my mouth was, okay, I'm done with you, but listen to me. If you're lying to me, I'm going to pray that the Lord makes you absolutely miserable. Now go. <laughs> that, that was the end of our conversation. And he was like, okay. And he seemed simultaneously scared and relieved that he was walking out without a consequence. Um, and about three days went by. And just in the middle of the day, complete ran, completely randomly, he came walking into my room crying. God's making me miserable. (laughs) That's not a prescription necessarily for how to parent, 
Um, but it was my effort to uh, draw him into an a more adult experience of dealing with these things with some authority other than just me to answer to. Um, and uh, it was coerced confession, no doubt. And I, we don't want to live like that. We don't want to live where we're only confessing when we've been dragged through misery first. And so I want us to talk tonight about the two kinds of confession that the scriptures talk about in ways that we can implement these as spiritual practice, as spiritual discipline. There are two primary kinds of confession, individual uh, confession as an individual discipline, which is confession between you and God. You have access to God. You have access to the Spirit at all times. And corporate confession as a corporate discipline, which is confession between you, me, and God, or any two of us, or three of us, or ten of us with the Lord present with us, okay? So let's talk about individual, the individual discipline of confession first. I think uh, this comes out in many, many cases, very clear example as people are first coming to faith in Jesus we're told that they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This happened with John. This happens uh, as, as people come to Jesus as well. As people come to faith, there is a link here that they are confessing their individual sins, their individual shortcomings. But why? Why, why does confession matter? Why is that a part of the deal? I want us to walk through Psalm 32. I've preached on this passage uh, in a different way on Easter before, but I want us to walk through this because I think it's a really great blueprint for the process we go through as it relates to confession. Verses one and two, the psalmist writes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. This, this passage is a little bit like the Beatitudes in that it gives you a conclusion first. Blessed is the one who's forgiven. And then there's kind of an exposition, how you get to that point of forgiveness. What is the process you go through to get to that blessed point of being forgiven, of having your sins covered? Um, and so it starts with that conclusion and then works through uh, all this talk about confession. But these verses say, I think it's important to see what it does say and what it doesn't say. These verses say that the blessed ones are not those who never sin, not those who are free of any kind of transgression or any kind of sin. Sin is assumed. Sin is assumed here. Sin is assumed in the scriptures. It is assumed as a human that you will fall short, that you will hurt other people, that you will live out of character, out of line with the way that God made you to live. So sin is an assumption here. And since sin is assumed, when it comes to trying to live a full life, a satisfying life, the kind of life you were made for, there's nothing, the psalmist says, nothing like being for forgiven. There's nothing like having those errors that you've made, the big ones and the small ones covered and removed from you. And so starting here with that promise, with that, uh, with, with that conclusion, that healthy, whole, sort of able to breathe deep life comes when you're living in that freedom of forgiveness, I wanna say that this psalm is, is going to show us that confession is not a punishment. 
It's not there to drag us through the guilt of our sin. Confession is God's recognition that we have a hard time because we're broken, because we're sinful. We have a hard time accepting forgiveness. We want it, but we have a hard time embracing it. We have a hard time walking in forgiveness. And confession is a sort of tunnel through that struggle. It's a way for us to take hold of this forgiveness that the psalmist talks about and really receive the forgiveness that's available to us. So from this point in the psalm, um, we're going to learn about human nature prior to this moment of conclusion, this moment of blessing, and why we need to be people who confess on purpose as a discipline to live in this freedom of forgiveness. Verses 3 and 4 say this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And what will come next, and we'll look at it individually, but what will come next is, then I acknowledge my sin to you. So you have this contrast of when I kept that acknowledgement of my sin silent, when I tried to deny it or hide it, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Day and night, I could feel your hand. I could feel the presence of the Lord, maybe because my dad prayed that I would be miserable, but either way, I could feel your hand heavy on me. And, and I felt weak. I felt, physically felt the impact of, of trapping my sin inside of myself, is what the psalmist said. So two things I want to say in this, this first part in response to this question of why is confession important? And the first reason is that confession enables us to live honestly with ourselves and with God. It, it, th- these verses reveal that to us, but confession opens up two different realities of sin. I want to talk about both of them real quick. Um, and one, is, one reality of sin is the, f- the fact of our, of our particular sins. Um, sin is a fact. It's just, it's just true that even today I have sinned. I've done things that I shouldn't have done or not done things that I should have done. Sin is a fact. And Sin is a disease. So the the reason the distinction between those two is important, or one of the reasons, is that even if I can line up a day where I eliminate the fact of sin in my life, if I can have a perfect day, if I can somehow stay away from all humans, right, which for me would be necessary in order to have a day that I didn't sin, have no human interaction, um, whatever you would line up for yourself, to make sure this is gonna be my perfect day, even if I could do that for one day and get rid of, there is no fact of sin on my ledger today, sin is still a disease in me. I can't do that day after day after day. And so this, what we see here from the psalmist reveals both the, the fact of sin and the disease of sin. So let me talk about both those things quickly. Um, when we talk about the facts of our sins, it means that there's, there's some, something, something specific, something that actually happened that has to be dealt with. It's not just that I feel guilty. It's not just about feelings. But there's, there's a real thing that is blocking, that is interfering with my life with God and my life the way that, that God intended it to be. In the, in the example I gave with Aiden, before we got to the breakdown moment, 
there was a real interruption in his relationship with Stacy. Stacy loves Aiden like she's like he's his, her own kid, and she she likes him. And so this wasn't a moment where she sent him home and she's like, "Do something about this kid." It wasn't that kind of thing. She was really sad. It really upset her that he would lie, that he would lie to her. Um, and there was an interruption in that relationship. And then when he and I couldn't get it straight, there was an interruption in that relationship. And then I just called out that I thought there was an interruption in his relationship with God until it got straight, right? There was a f- sin was a fact. And that fact had consequences for him. And, it, and it's that way for all of us. If it was just about feeling guilty, then, then that could be resolved by just addressing the feeling of guilt. There are ways to block out guilt, right? But, but even when we feel fine, and, and as sinners, we can make ourselves feel fine because we have a high capacity for deceiving others, for deceiving ourselves, sin still stands as a real functional barrier between us and God as long as it's there, as long as it's real. We're, and, and when that's the case, when it just is standing there, we're rejecting the life that he made us for. And that creates some separation. And that's true for us. Even after we get saved, even after we decide to follow Jesus and we experience what, what we describe as an eternal forgiveness of sin, there is still sin that comes that stands as a fact that has an impact, that has a consequence. That's why in the New Testament, we see John write this. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This suggests an ongoing need for us for confession. And that, of course, means there's an ongoing need for us to be humble, to to recognize that this is true about us and to allow a real examination of our lives and hearts. Confession is not just a one-and-done salvation sort of occurrence. It is something that God intends to be an ongoing part of our lives. It acknowledges that we're always dependent on grace. I wasn't just at one time dependent on God's grace and God's forgiveness. I'm always and forever dependent on it. It admits that whatever choices I make, big or small, that are not really kingdom life, are choices that put space between me and God. And I need to admit that is going on and address it instead of letting it just carry on unaddressed. And understanding, I want to say, because I know that this conversation about sin makes some of us uncomfortable, um, and talking about sin and confession and forgiveness, we start thinking again in a really legalistic way, and that God's keeping a score sheet, and this is primarily about this list of immoral things I've done, or that kind of thing. And and, and that's that's a very small slice, I think, of the, the, the broadness of the understanding that I think God wants us to have. God wants us to see who he is and see what life in his kingdom is like and understand all the ways that we run from that, that we resist that, that we miss out on what he intends. So that's why we've spent months and long series in talking in big picture ways about what is the kingdom of God like? What is God doing in the world and how are we supposed to be connected and be a part of it? Because understanding the kingdom gives us, I think, a more accurate and a broader view of sin, not just us keeping a list of these obvious moral mess-ups that we have, but it's us allowing any part of our day-to-day life, day-to-day life 
that is being formed by just the natural flow, by the inertia of the world, and not by the active formation of the way of Jesus to be subject to that examination and to be confessed. Romans 12, 2 urges us, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by this present age. When we talk about sin, we often, most of our minds are gonna go to specific things that we know that we struggle with. And that's part of this. But the bigger conversation is, are we a people that are allowing ourselves to be squeezed into the shape of the present age? Or are we a people who are intentionally putting ourselves in the flow of the Spirit to be formed into the shape of God's kingdom? And where we're not that, and where we're this, we're being squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age, we need to acknowledge it. We need to say it out loud so that God can deal with it so that we can be formed differently. This is the big picture of sin and confession. I think we get caught in this conversation so much, um, and, and, and just in life. So much of our lives are spent trying to, to deal with or avoid guilt. It's just the, the, the age we live in, it's just the nature of the human soul. Um, and we're constantly telling ourselves, we're constantly telling each other, you, sh- you shouldn't feel guilty so much, right? And that's, that's true. That is a true statement. We shouldn't be people who walk around feeling guilty. But it's true because we're given a way to address what makes us feel guilty, not just to run from it, not just to avoid it. A way has been made for us to be free of it, not by avoiding it or denying it, but by acknowledging with it so it can be dealt with. So this psalm, I think, opens our eyes to the fact of sin. And, and it, it's calling us to acknowledge the facts of sin in our lives. If you've ever been to an AA meeting or you know anybody who's, who's spent time in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of, one of the just mandatory parts of the process there is that you do a ruthless or a fearless moral inventory. There is a, a, an acknowledged need to deal with the facts what about your life is off track, is not the way that it's meant to be. And this is not about making you feel guilty. It is about absolving you of guilt by acknowledging where the breaches are. And that's the point of dealing uh, with our sin in an honest way. It's to get us to a point where we're free of excuses, where we're able, when we face our sin, to just say, I made a choice. It doesn't need to be excused or explained. It just needs to be acknowledged and forgiven. That is where we're going and dealing with and confessing the facts of our sin. Walter Brueggemann insists that this psalm is sort of relentless in pointing us in that direction because it says that there are no substitutes for confession and forgiveness. If we don't confess and receive forgiveness, uh, that even our body can't be deceived about the presence of sin. The psalmist is saying, I wasted away. I felt the heaviness. We cannot outrun it. We have to own it and deal with it and allow it to be forgiven. So freedom from the facts of our sin, the facts of our our guilt requires embracing the reality of our sin and having it dealt with by God's mercy. It's also, I think, revealed here that sin is a disease, that it's not just a fact or a legal status or something that happens here and there. It's something that devours us however subtly or however simply 
and even in physical ways, as I pointed out, that, that it is in our bones and it affects us. And we are not free of the need to acknowledge our sin or live confessing lives just because we're not doing something really terrible at the moment, just because there's not some really awful fact. It doesn't take us out of the need to deal with the reality of sin and, um, and to be people who confess. We need to talk, uh, or, or we tend to talk of ourselves um, as sinners, and this is, this is just one last thing I want to address in this part, and then we'll move on, but we, we have a tendency, there is a way in which we've kind of found safe ground for confession. We've found it safe to acknowledge, well, yeah, of course I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, right? That's a very safe, it's, it's true, it's important, and if you find somebody that won't admit that, they've got a problem, and that's something to be dealt with. Um, but it, it's sort of the safest version of confession. We sort of just make it another demographic fact about us. Um, and, and not an identification of something that's particularly wrong with me or something that requires anything of me other than the ability to say, um, I'm forgiven, you know? Jesus forgave me. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven. True. And if that's where we stand, if that's as far as we go into this, we don't really understand the freedom available to us, the day-to-day freedom available to us from what's still going to be lurking around the corner. Because what's lurking is not this innocuous, eh, I'm a sinner, no big deal kind of thing. It's real stuff that eats us alive and leaves us feeling broken and destroys relationships and leaves us heavy with the hand of the Lord upon us and wasting away in our guilt. And we have to go deeper than just that generic acknowledgement. And because, because dealing with that and looking at sin that way is, is both too optimistic and it's too fatalistic. And here's what I mean by that. It's too optimistic because it allows us to believe that, I mean, as long as Jesus forgives me, I'm okay. I don't need to go on confessing because all that's covered. And that's dangerous because it sets you up for not really dealing with the facts and the ongoing disease of sin. But I think it also is just thievery from the kind of joy that God made you for. It's too fatalistic because it causes us to just resign ourselves to, well, I'm, yeah, that's me. I'm in that category of sinner. I mean, thank God I'm forgiven and miss out on the renewing and redeeming purpose of God's forgiveness and grace. Sin is a real thing. It's a fact. It's also a disease. And it's a disease for which the only cure is the cross. And the cross is a once and for all cure, but the scriptures couldn't be clearer that walking in light of the cross is a life of ongoing confession that keeps us tethered to that healing power of the cross. Okay, verse 5 is where the psalmist then confesses. And he says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The second thing that I think I want to say today in answer to this question of why confession is that confession enables us to receive forgiveness. It's what really leads us to being able to embrace forgiveness, to heal, and to be changed. 
If you, if you go in a little deeper into this passage in Psalm 32, this verse 5, and you get into the Hebrew, which I don't really know, but I found this in my study at some point in the past, the way that the Hebrew is, is constructed here, there is no break between the phrases that, that communicate, I confessed and you forgave. They are all jammed together. There's a slash between I confessed and you forgave. There is nothing between confession and forgiveness. It is immediate. There is a direct correlation, a direct connection between the confession and the forgiveness. The whole difference between what was happening in verses three and four when I was hiding and not living in the reality of forgiveness and what we see here is the act of acknowledging, the act of confession. Um, in, In three and four, There's no acknowledgement. In verse 5, there's acknowledgement. And immediately, there is not just a theological reality of forgiveness, but a lived experience of the freedom of forgiveness. The message paraphrases this this way. It says, suddenly the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. When it's put out into the light, the reality of forgiveness is, enters in and makes all the difference for the psalmist. Proverbs addresses this as well. It says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Richard Foster, who's written a lot on spiritual disciplines and good stuff on confession, I'll read a little bit more of what he wrote in just a minute, but he says, the work of redemption through the cross means that confession and forgiveness involves an objective change in our relationship with God, so that's kind of the theological truth, and a subjective change in us. It is a means of healing and transforming the inner spirit. When this goes on, when we confess and we live in the reality of our, our forgiveness, we are healed. It really changes something inside of us. God changed the reality at the cross, and when we become confessing people, we enter that reality because we just say out loud, I need it. (laughs) We acknowledge our need for the cross. And in that way, confession not only relieves us of whatever it is we've dealt with in, in the past, but it moves us forward as it frees us from those sins in the days ahead. Okay? So, confession is an individual discipline. It's also a corporate discipline, and I just want to say a couple of things about this. Scriptures speak to this in several places as well. The most obvious is James 5, which says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When a righteous person prays, that prayer carries great power. Uh, The English Standard Version of that says that there is great power as the prayer is working. there, There is something real that happens when we confess to one another and pray for one another. Acts 19 tells a story of early converts, and it says many people who became believers came forward to make public confession, revealing what they had been up to. Some who had been practicing magic brought their books and burned them in front of everyone. Someone calculated how much they were all worth, and it came to 50,000 silver pieces. So the word grew and was strong in accordance with the Lord's power. Probably nobody needs to come burn their magic books today. But the point is that as people were coming to faith, they were standing up in front of the church and acknowledging, this is 
what my life was and ridding themselves of the things that tied them to that life. And there was power in that. It affected other people to see that public confession. It's true. I want to be clear when we talk about confessing to each other that the scriptures say, Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy 2, that there's one mediator between man and God, and that's Jesus Christ. And so confessing to one another is not, is not a substitute for confession to Jesus. But the scriptures tell us to do both, to confess our sins to the Lord and to also confess our sins to one another. And those two kinds of confession don't exclude each other. God designed them to work together in our salvation. And for us to exclude one, I think, is a rejection of his intention. So let me, let me just talk about the practical part of this for a couple of minutes, and then I'll be done. I, I think we miss out on this in a lot of ways. I think we often miss out on confession in general as a discipline, but, but certainly this second corporate expression of the discipline of confession, this confessing our sins to one another. And I think we miss out on it because how we view other people, how we view the church, because of the risk involved um, and our desire to avoid the awkwardness of that. Richard Foster again says this, if we know that the people of God are first a fellowship of sinners, we're freed to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We know we're not alone in our sin. The fear and pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others also. We're sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied, but transformed. What I think we're being called to do here is, is um, if we can get down sort of to the crux of our souls, is a relief. It is a welcome thing because it allows us to let go of that burden of hiding and pretending, which is something that takes up a whole lot of energy for us, of trying to hide certain parts of ourselves and to pretend. The goal is for us to be free to be who we really are, acknowledge who we really are before God and before God's people, not present this cleaned up version of ourselves. Um, and so the point of us being here together on Sundays, in calm groups, any time that we're together as believers um, is not for us to get far enough away from the broken version of us that will finally be free. It's to bring that version of us to other believers and say, this is all of it. We pray for me. And let's, let's access the healing power of the Spirit together. And I think we're only going to be free when we let that version of ourselves walk through this door every single Sunday, every time we show up to Com Group, every time we're with God's people. We let that version, that real version of ourself uh, be in God's presence and in God's presence with his gathered people. I think that you're only going to be free in the way that you were meant to be free when you stop denying your humanity and start allowing your humanity to be, to be revealed so that it can be transformed. And the goal isn't, I want to be really clear, because this is we can get stuck here. The point of that isn't to, hey, let's all just talk about how sinful we are and wallow in it and get stuck there. 
The point is to acknowledge it so that we can be free of it. And if we don't move on to that part of it, then we're just as stuck as we ever were. The last part of what Foster writes I want us to read because I want to put it before us as kind of a vision for who we can be as a church. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. Honesty leads to confession, and confession leads to change. Part of um, this, I think this vision that Foster lays out is about what happens uh, after the confession and what happens in us receiving forgiveness and absolution, even from one, from one another. And I have, uh, there's a whole second sermon I would preach if we had time. I'm not, I'm not going to, but I'm going to write about that a little bit because I think there's a piece of this that I'm not going to talk about tonight. Um, that involves when we confess our sins to one another, when we pray for one another, how we take hold of forgiveness and absolution and how we can participate in that healing, in that growth in one another. So I'm going to write about that and I'll make sure you have an opportunity to see that. But, but to finish up tonight, I, I want to say two things about what I think is holding us back in this stuff. The first thing, uh, and I'm not going to elaborate on this a lot, for time's sake, but the first thing that holds us back is, is the very obvious thing, and that is that we have within us a very strong resistance to our frailty and our sin being exposed. It, it, that resistance in most of us is relentless. We do, no matter how much we believe that this is true and we want it to be true, uh, we do not like for that to be unfolded and exposed. And so I just want to say, you got to get over it. You've got to, at some point, die to that thing in you that resists having your weaknesses and your sins exposed. In, <clears throat> in general, as a pre preemptive thing, you've got to start disciplining you and, and, and asking the Spirit to discipline your heart to be open and ready to be humble. And also reactively, when others in the body come to you and say, hey, there's this thing either you did to wound me or this thing that you did that I don't think is consistent with who God wants you to be, you have to know that resistance is going to come roaring out. And I deal with this constantly in pastoral contexts when there is sin being addressed either in general and it's, it's most obvious when there's sin between two people and you sit and you watch them talk and they're both people who love Jesus and nobody wants to be the guilty party. And almost always, they're both guilty. That's just, sorry, spoiler alert. If you come to me to settle a dispute, you're probably both guilty. But we like a story where there's a bad guy and a victim. And I just want to remind you that in most contexts where Jesus is standing in a group of people and there's the apparently righteous and the apparently unrighteous, it's the apparently righteous who are missing it. So when you're at odds with someone in the body and someone is confronting you about your sin, you be cautious if you've decided you're the obviously righteous person in this transaction. We have to be ready to deal with that resistance that doesn't want our sin, our frailty exposed. I am not exempt from this. I know this is true because I deal with it with myself. That's the first thing. The second thing is even... Aside from that in-the-moment defensiveness, 
Most of us are pre-programmed with other defense mechanisms that cause us to avoid confession as a discipline. So I want to talk about four of them, just list them off, tell you a couple of things about them, and I'm done. Here's the first one. I'm afraid to do this. Some of us resist being known and entering into confession because of fear. We've been hurt. We've seen others hurt, and making ourselves known makes us vulnerable to that again. But I just want to say that living out of fear is just choosing the bondage of isolation over the risk of pain. And every time I see this, I just want to say, don't let the terrorists win, because that's what it feels like to me. It feels like we're just hunkered down and staying home because going outside means risk. But some of us are afraid, and we're going to have to decide to give that fear to the Lord and discover that the only real safety for us is going to be found when we, we realize we're known and we're still loved. Not just in theory, but actually loved. Okay? Here's the second one. I'm quiet. Some of us resist being known because we're shy or we're introverts. I'm one of these people. But withholding yourself isn't just... Being shy, being an introvert is not an excuse for withholding yourself in the context of the kingdom, in the context of the church, as it relates to confession. It's, it's something that feels like self-protection, but it ultimately stunts our formation because we're just saying no to something that God says, this is part of you being formed. And so it limits our formation into the image of Jesus. If you aren't known in the body, you can't be formed in the body. It's that simple. And there's a whole other thing about you're withholding your journey and your growth from other people who need it. This is holding some of us back. The opposite is true for some people. I'm one of those people, man, my stuff is out there. You know my stuff. You've been around for five minutes. You know my stuff. You don't have to call out any names, but we have these people. Some of us are these people. Some of us can go from the first kind to the second kind when we're in community long enough, which is a weird kind of distorted success of community, right? Some of us resist being known by pretending to be known, by being that person who just, I'm always talking about my stuff. And we talk a lot, and it's kind of generalized. Um, and we even kind of carve out a, a confessional identity that people just accept, and they never really challenge, and they never really get in. And we never really let them into the spaces because we got all this stuff that we're willing to put out there. We know what spaces we're holding back. And there's a risk for these people of safe communal church. Um, and, and there's another risk in this, and that's that it becomes self-centered, that, that uh, we're always talking about our stuff and we miss that the purpose of confession is not to just always be talking about our stuff, but it is to put our stuff out there so that it can be prayed for, so that the Lord can heal it, and so that that healing can become an invitation to other people to also have space to confess their stuff and be healed. It's not just about us owning the room with our confession. All right, last one is this. I'm fine. Um, and I think there's a bit of this probably in the, other, the others as well. But there's some of us that this is the primary deal. We resist being known by making sure we come off as competent and together as much as we possibly can. And, and some of us are really good at this because we are pretty competent and put together most of the time. And, and your, your version of this may be a little different. You may resist being known because you're just not interested in surrendering control of, 
of who you are and putting it out there to be put, putting yourself out there to be examined. Because um, if you're known, then you may have to concede that people will see things in you that you're trying to hide or that you're not aware of or that uh, you are aware of and you just aren't interested in what people have to say about it. <laughs> and uh, that's a whole other circling back to fear and to idolizing control. But, but here's what I want to say about that. If you're, if you're not someone who is willingly and regularly acknowledging your weaknesses and your sin in front of people, okay? If, that, if, if that's not comfortable for you to willingly and regularly let people see your, I'm not talking about a generic, of course, I'm imperfect, but let people know what's really wrong with you, where you've really failed. If you go through life resisting that, you will not be an active, authentic part of this process by which people in the body are truly experiencing change and by which the church is experiencing and demonstrating the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. You cannot be above it and still be part of it. You can't. No matter how much you generally acknowledge your need for grace or sing about God's forgiveness, if you're not down in the reality, regularly owning your, your specific need for grace and forgiveness, you are going to exile yourself on an island that's just an island of your own righteousness. It's just this safe space where you're okay, where you're fine. And that island will be a lonely place where you will not fare well in the storms of life. You're not fine. <laughs> not in that way. So I encourage you, wherever all that lands with you, ask people if they experience you as someone who readily acknowledges your frail humanity, your specific needs for grace, or if you present in one of these four ways and, and make it hard for people to really access where you're sinful and to hear confession from, from you. Because when we resist in these ways, um, becoming this kind of church that Foster talks about doesn't happen. Doing this requires us to embrace confession as a discipline. And I say as a discipline because of all of these measures of resistance, we will only overcome the resistance on purpose in a consistent, intentional way. And if the Bible is to believe, be believed on this, none of us have yet matured or are going to, before the end of things, mature out of the ongoing healing that comes through true, visible humility and confession. Let's pray. Father, would you show us that in this humility, in confession, you are waiting to release power and healing. Would you, whatever obstacles or fears or insecurities we have, would you overcome them with the great promise, the great hope of the joy 
that comes from being known and discovering in being known we are loved and we're forgiven. So move us to action, not just to casual agreement or sort of basic conviction, but move us toward you by making us people who are building into our lives moments to acknowledge where we need your grace and your healing. And do that, work that grace and that healing into our life through Jesus. As we confess, put in front of us the healing reality of Jesus who gave himself for us by the work of the cross and the power of his resurrection overcomes all that is broken within us. We're going to take communion together. You're invited to come and in this intentional act acknowledge your need for the body and the blood of Jesus and receive it with joy and believe that there is healing Jesus.